High-performance computing and AI is being used to positively transform society and mitigate climate change. KO Data's 100% renewably powered data centers support the mission-critical workloads of life sciences, biotech and AI startups in Cambridge. Find out how we can reduce your digital carbon footprint at kodata.com slash contact. KO Data, proud to sponsor the Cambridge Tech Podcast. Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. Welcome to this week's Cambridge Tech Podcast. Let's jump straight into this week's tech news. Cambridge deep tech company Infosense has officially launched Cortense, its first commercially available solution to transform Legionella risk management and dramatically cut water waste. Included in the announcement was the news that they will be the delivery partner for Wave, a national water retailer who has secured funding from market operator Mosul in a two-year 1,000 device deployment project. Low Risk, the Cambridge-based Open Silicon Ecosystem Organisation, and the Open Titan Coalition have achieved a significant milestone with the first open-source silicon project to reach commercial availability with validated chips in hand. In conjunction with a low-risk announcement, Zero Risk out of Boston, you may remember Zero Risk was the first overseas investment by Cambridge Angels at the end of last year. Anyhow, Zero Risk and Novoten Technology Corporation announced the availability of the world's first open-source secure chip to include commercial-grade design verification, top-level testing and continuous integration. Researchers from Cambridge UK quantum error correction company Riverlane and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Plasma Science and Fusion Centre are collaborating to develop efficient quantum algorithms for the simulation of plasma dynamics under the US Department of Energy's Fusion Energy Sciences Programme. The initiative has two goals, firstly to expand the understanding of matter at very high temperatures and densities, and secondly to build the knowledge needed to develop a fusion energy source. South Korea's science and chemical giant LG Chem is working with Cambridge-based Luminance to transform its handling of contracts from around the world. LG Chem is the first Korean company to adopt Luminance Corporate, the company's flagship AI product. Following the end of a successful trial, which we announced on a previous podcast, One Spatial has now secured a 12-month contract with UK Power Networks for its traffic management plan automation solution under the One Streetworks brand in the UK. And that's the end of this week's news. So on to this week's episode. Mishkonda Rea last month published a report on 2023 deals, and we thought it'd be interesting to get a perspective from a different angle to the usual angels and VCs who we regularly speak to. So with that in mind, we invited Chris Keane, who heads up the Emerging Companies Practice here in Cambridge, to tell us more. Chris, 
thanks so much for taking the time to come on. I'm very excited that you're here because this is the start of a new weekly segment on the podcast, which is NFL Chat, which I'm sure Faye is very excited about. But uh, joking aside, we're both big NFL fans and you you recently had the pleasure stroke disappointment of going to the Super Bowl. What was that experience like? I was going to ask, why are you doing this to me? (laughs) It's cruel. Uh, It was a surreal experience. I'm extremely lucky that it was actually my third Super Bowl trip. Wow. Um, Each time I've been with my dad, my beloved 49ers have been in the game twice and lost twice so there is a measure of me that thinks I should never go again because I'm clearly jinxing it but um, there's a measure of me that would go anytime I could it's a totally surreal incredibly predictably overblown American experience but it's awesome and at the risk of being a bit twee the best thing about it is spending four or five days just me and my dad hanging out the game is an added bonus on top of that but it is amazing it is yeah and in our stadium this year as well. I'm yes. a fan, by the way. Um, yes, but that's enough of that. Faye's getting very irritated already. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's good for our US audience as well to hear this. <laughs> so true. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you get away that's with true. that. It's We're fine. Very and, and we inclusive. Won't, yeah, we won't get well, Carl to edit that bit out at all. We won't. Okay, good. Seriously. All right. That's the most valuable thing I had to say. <laughs> So I'd like to start the conversation around the Mishcon fundraising report that's just been recently published. There's a lot of detail in there, so we'll kind of go through that and we'll put some links on on the podcast um, show notes on how to download that. Why don't you start with just painting the landscape of the different investment vehicles that the report covers? There's a lot of terminology in there, so let's just do a quick level set for everyone. Yeah, of course. Thanks. So the report is essentially a summary of what we've been up to, what our clients have been up to, and what we've seen happening in the market over the course of 2023. It is a sort of annual look back. And the market that it focuses on is essentially businesses that are involved in raising or deploying capital. It's primarily venture capital transactions, but there's some private equity in there as well. And for the most part, what we're doing is giving a kind of snapshot of two things, what the market has been like for people trying to raise capital. So we sort of provide some commentary on that by reference to the number of transactions we've been involved in, the value of those transactions and comparing that on an annual basis over the last four years. I think we've been producing the report for to give a sense of sort of direction of travel, if you will. And the other thing that we, of course, look at is the sectors in which we've seen companies successfully raising money to get an idea of where there's lots of activity and where companies and investors are perhaps particularly struggling to find value and and match make. So in that context, like I say, the majority of it is traditional venture capital. So we're looking at angels and institutional funds deploying cash in in return for equity stakes in past growth businesses. The other element of it is the private equity deals, which are more akin to an exit for the majority of companies. That's, that's obviously where you've got someone taking a majority stake in a business and providing it with a significant amount of capital in order to turbocharge growth, but primarily then for the benefit of, of the PE house that's taken a stake. So it's a, it's a sort of nuanced view on the different types of deals that are going on. My personal practice is mostly on the venture capital side. And we'll definitely get into that in a second. So before we do, let's just cover off the overall landscape, first of all, if we can. So a couple of weeks ago, we had Pam Garside on from Cambridge Angels, and we had a big discussion about the funding landscape, and it's starting to tick up maybe a little bit at the end of, of last year. And definitely, is it going to tick up this year? From the report, from reading it, it suggests that there was a lot of pressure on funding last year, but you did start to see it tipping over. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course. It 
it was a really strange year, to be honest, Faye, because when the report was first produced and, and we were obviously circulating copies of it internally, I was really surprised by the volume of deals that we'd acted on. And I, I don't say this to sort of toot my own horn or that of my team, but... Over the last couple of years, we've averaged about 180 financing transactions a year, and that was kind of during boom times. And so 2023, I was kind of expecting it to be maybe 100. It certainly felt like we were a lot less active or there was fewer deals going on. And yet we came out at 172, which is almost identical year on year. But it never felt like that. And I think the reason for that is because the value of those deals, again, comparing last year with those prior, had massively dropped. So what we were seeing is a sort of similar volume of transactions coming through. They were much patchier. So we had real peaks of activity, but then it would go quiet for a couple of months where what we had been used to and what our peers in the industry from chatting to them had been used to is obviously just being consistently busy. So I'd kind of been misled, I think, about how much activity there was actually going on by having those rare moments of calm and quiet. But lots of companies still raising money, but doing smaller transactions, partly a combination, I think, of the availability of capital and appetite from investors to write really big checks into things. And partly a function of the fact that a lot of those deals were companies raising bridging financing and at the risk of being too casual in how I'll phrase it, basically kind of kicking the can down the road, you know, another 12 to 18 months worth of cash in the hopes of doing the next major capital injection in a better climate, you know, a year or so hence. And is that a less complex transaction from your perspective? Therefore, it felt less busy? Yeah, I think that's right. So those tend to be simpler transactions, less complex, you know, less involved. So they're quicker and easier. Clients have the joy of spending less time on the phone to us and getting emails from me in getting those delivered. But also because they're off our desks sooner, it kind of changes the usual momentum and the cadence of deal flow coming through. And as I say, I think they're also often either internally led or entirely internal round, so existing shareholders putting more capital into the business, which, if you think about it kind of objectively, is more likely to be a straightforward deal because it's less likely that you're making major changes to things like governance and capital structures and things which obviously impact on the length of a negotiation and the complexity of delivering and agreeing a deal with the with the participating investors. That's interesting. So you touched on there that the kind of volume wasn't too far off, actually, where it was. A lot of bridging loan activity. What, what about the rest of the mix? Were you seeing kind of a difference in the number of, you know, fresh fundraisers versus acquisitions and M&A kind of activity? Did that change at all? Yeah, it did. The bit that was consistent, though, just to make sure I've mentioned that, was the, the really early stage stuff, the kind of pre-seed and seed activity. I think that's a combination of the fact that the investors who invest in those types of companies have to have a level of tolerance for risk and an appetite for opportunity, if you want to put it the other way, which means that they're perhaps largely unaffected by wider market conditions because it's not like investing in a pre-seed startup suddenly became exponentially more risky because of what was going on in the, in the wider economy. But also the fact that I think some of the kind of trickle-down effects of the wider economic challenges that were impacting on later stage capital had not really made their way down to the types of funds and the types of investors who are who are looking to play in, in that part of the market. So that part was fairly consistent. And I think, again, because those tend to be slightly simpler, more straightforward transactions, that's maybe where I was kind of misplaced in my expectation around overall deal volumes. Where we did see things change was in that 
sort of mid to later stage, kind of Series B onwards, mm. where, you know, that's obviously not where you see the majority of data points across any kind of spread of venture capital transactions, because obviously they become larger. They tend to provide you with a greater duration of available working capital and so on. But those deals came under a lot of pressure. So, you know, still a a good number of our clients um, got those kind of transactions away, but they were an order of magnitude smaller than they might have told me they were planning to raise six to 12 months earlier. The deal terms were not necessarily anywhere near as attractive to the company and the existing shareholders. So that perhaps actually drove a bit of a desire to take a smaller check in that in that stage and hope again that the market conditions would be better when they need more money. And on the M&A piece, it was a real mixed bag. So for the first six months of the year, I would say there was really very little M&A activity in the market. Certainly some of the firms that I know who play in a sort of slightly different part of the M&A market generally, the kind of the classic sort of mid-market of non-venture-backed businesses were finding that there was basically nothing to do. What we saw in the second half of the year, though, was a whole bunch of actually kind of what you might call opportunistic acquisitions. So we had quite a few companies where I think if you looked back four or five years, their objective would never have been to sell in the second half of 2023. They would have thought they had a lot of that growth journey left to go, and they did. But when you're looking at, as a, as a group of shareholders and directors around their board tables and thinking, what's the risk? Like, what level of risk are we taking by trying to double down and grow this business another five times, 10 times where it is right now in order to achieve our optimum value of exit versus taking a, a lower rate of return now, but at least there is a return and, you know, and everyone's kind of broadly happy. It's just not the utopian scenario we dreamed of at the beginning. Those obviously became more attractive outcomes. And for the for the acquirers who were being active at that stage, I think they got some fantastic deals. I'll put it that way. And how is this year starting? Is it carrying on in that same way? So on the venture stuff, um, it's as if someone mercifully pulled down the shutters on 2023 and we woke up to a new day in 2024 because it's been extremely busy. I mean, we're only six weeks in, so I can't rule out that this is one of the peaks, you know, that I was saying we experienced in 2023. But the sort of volume of stuff in my inbox and the, the fact that I can see things now that are kicking off that will be, you know, materially picking up momentum over um, the rest of Q1 and towards the for lawyers and tax advisors dreaded end of the tax year when there's a big rush on SEIS and EIS deals. I think it's looking much better. And one of the really positive things is that some of the sectors that are most capital intensive and therefore have come under the most pressure, things like life sciences, you know, healthcare, drug discovery, et cetera, we're seeing some really great deals starting to come through in those sectors, which I think is a, a hopeful sign of a return of investor confidence in in backing capital intensive businesses that are, you know, based in deep science and research and tend to not only be capital intensive, but also have a slightly longer return on investment horizon. You mentioned the life sciences there. You know, the other narrative is the money's pouring into AI. Is that is that playing out in the data that you see as well? Yeah, it is. So I think we're past the point of anyone changing the end of their domain name to .ai, <laughs> suddenly being able to raise five million just by batting their eyelids. But um, in 2023, the you know, the way we group companies together for the purposes of categorising them in sectors is we put data and AI together and actually I kind of think they should be separate. But um, certainly that was our 
our biggest area in terms of the volume of deals that we were involved in company and investor side was was businesses that are looking to deploy AI mostly in a commercial context rather than any kind of B2C application. Um, there's no sign of that slowing down. And obviously you've seen the amazing stuff coming out of um, open AI overnight. With, I don't know if you've seen the new sort of text-to-video technology. Um, while not many of our clients are playing in that sphere, the momentum that those guys have and the sort of shockwaves that they're generating in the industry with the things that they're capable of doing is, I think, reinforcing for a lot of non-sector-specific investors that there must be massive opportunity in this space. Moving to geography a little bit, I'm reading the report, 75% of the transactions you dealt with were in the Golden Triangle, so Cambridge, London, Oxford. But Actually, there was massive growth outside that area. Can you talk to us a little bit about the geographical split and what you what what you specifically see from Cambridge as well? Yeah, of course. So um, I think it's kind of inevitable that a concentration of transactions that we were involved in reflects the three office locations that we have here. You know, that's where the the lawyers have their deepest networks and closest connections. So that's predictably where our work comes from. But one of the things that has been really exciting for us over the last sort of 18 months has been to see these other entrepreneurial ecosystems that have long been discussed and have been starting in other parts of the country really start to come to life. So we've been involved in a whole bunch of initiatives in in the Midlands and further north as well. There was a conference called Climb 23 last year, which was up in Leeds, which was fantastic. We were there. There's a whole bunch of amazing companies coming out of that ecosystem. You've got the Midlands Mine Forge Fund coming together, which is um, already making a huge difference, backing some of the cool companies that we're seeing coming out of, particularly academia and research institutes in the Midlands. Do a lot of work in Nottingham, for example. Some some good connections with um, with people in that ecosystem. So it's actually really nice to see, as was always kind of predictable, I think that. The lessons that that are capable of being learned from the centres of expertise in Cambridge and Oxford and London um, starting to be replicated elsewhere around the country. And we're obviously really pleased to be supporting some of those and involved in, in some of those deals that are going on. In Cambridge, it has obviously continued to be the centre of my universe because I, I live and have uh, have worked here for, for 15 years and I've lived here for my entire life. But um, the ecosystem here has, I think, been a real sort of beacon of what I was describing earlier about the pre-seed and the seed market being incredibly robust. There's obviously a significant number of investors based in or primarily looking for deal flow from this part of the market. They have a huge risk tolerance because they have an understanding that that's where opportunity comes from. And the types of companies that are coming out of the university in particular um, are just, you know, fantastic combinations of science and research and intellect. So whether you're looking at some of the things that the university and and the ecosystem is typically known for around life sciences, um, loads of great deep tech companies coming out of Cambridge, and there is a real understanding from particularly the local VCs that while those might be businesses that are objectively hard to scale because there's real sort of deep research and, and scientific endeavour involved in them, that's also where there's huge amounts of opportunity. So, you know, we love working with CIC and IQ and Amadeus and all the others who I'm now in trouble with because I haven't specifically named them. But the way that they have continued to support new companies coming out of Cambridge, whether that's the university or the ecosystem generally, through difficult times has been amazing and a stark contrast to what we've seen with um, uh, other investors in other parts of the market who've really sort of 
spent the last 18 months navel-gazing and being anxious about writing checks. I mean, they, I, I remember a conversation with Simon Thorpe and he was saying, actually, the, the Cambridge investors are really bullish. You know, they, they're doing this for the longer term and therefore they want to keep that support going, which is really good. I think one of the most reassuring but also challenging parts of the dynamic of the last 12, 18 months in venture capital has been that we've in some ways regressed to institutional investors looking to the angel community to effectively safeguard and produce a pipeline of good companies for them to invest in at Series A, B, later stage. And I recognise that when you're an institution and you're deploying someone else's capital, you perhaps have to take a sort of slightly different approach to risk tolerance and appetite. But it was at the start of my career and for the first sort of seven or eight years of my career, the case that angels were kind of propping up the whole venture ecosystem because VCs would not come and play in those early stages. We saw a real shift away from that during the boom period, which was great for companies. Hopefully it was good for angels in the sense that it kind of de-risked their position somewhat. We've seen a real trend back in that direction of most of the pre-seed and seed rounds we've been done have been very specialist institutional investors, of which there are some and they are fantastic, but a lot of angel checks. And I think it's worth us in a public forum just kind of saying how important that is and how unrecognised that is in the wider discourse around venture capital. You know, the role that those individuals play in in bringing new companies through and supporting them is is understated and I think deserves more of the spotlight than it gets. So whilst we're talking about, you know, the changes that you've seen, have you seen any changes around where capital's coming into Cambridge deals? And maybe a supplementary question, any interest in terms of how external investors can tap into deal flow from the Cambridge area? Yeah, so we have seen a bit of a shift, James. It hasn't been like a real massive movement of the of the needle on the dial uh, because Cambridge deal flow has always been attractive to investors based outside of this geography. But I would say we've We've seen a real uptick in corporate venturing. So I've been involved in a number of transactions, particularly life sciences ones, actually by coincidence, I think, rather than because there's necessarily a pattern here where big corporates have been coming and getting involved in sort of series A stage transactions where either or both of the following might be true. That's not a normal thing for them to do in terms of investing perhaps even off balance sheet in in companies, but also coming in that early. Quite often you would see in those types of deals, you know, corporates with strategics would tend to get involved a bit later on. So that's been obviously positive and there's there's challenges involved as a, you know, as a startup or a growing company having a potential acquirer and or customer on your cap table. But that's a different issue. The the other thing we've seen a lot of and I think there's been an uptick in this this dialogue, but again not like a sort of earth-shattering shift, is investors based outside of Cambridge actively asking us and other people who are deeply embedded in this ecosystem to start giving them some exposure and access to Cambridge deals. So I have lots of investors, UK investors as well as overseas, saying to me, when things are coming out of Cambridge, coming out of the university, et cetera, you know, can, can you give us some sight of those? If the round's not already full, can you share decks with us? They fundamentally, I think, recognise the quality of the people and the technology and the science coming out of this city and the wider region and want to be exposed to that because they see it as, you know, obviously a massive opportunity to create value for themselves or for their LPs and in their funds. So 
yeah, it's it, that's a that's a real positive trend, I think. Although it's not without its challenges, of course, because Cambridge is a sometimes a slightly inward-looking place, and we have ways of doing things, and everybody knows everybody. So there can be some challenges for new entrants to this geography, trying to get used to sort of network of those relationships and the understandings everyone has with one another about how to work together and how to get deals done. Mm. Overall, really positive that yeah. there's that that level of interest in in what is coming out of Cambridge, which is you know the the purpose of it. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages, which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. We also offer a range of high-quality meeting spaces for hire and for tech event organisers, our auditorium, lakeside pavilion and atrium spaces are perfect to bring your communities together for in-person and hybrid events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. So my next question, and this is going to be a tricky one because I'm going to ask you something and you're going to say, I can't actually talk about that. <laughs> so uh, I do appreciate a lot of the transactions that you do are confidential. You know, you can't go, go into detail on them. But is there is there anyone that you can mention that people would be familiar with? Or can you give us kind of a profile of the types of, of companies that you work with? Sure. Happy to, and I'll try not to answer in the way that you suggested. So to do the latter question first, the profile of things that I look after and my my team looks after is incredibly broad. So I would say our, our sort of superpower is that we give things that are right at the earliest stages, you know, pre-incorporation even, as much love and partner attention and what have you as we do things that are raising hundreds of millions or even more. Because our methodology and our ethos as a team is about helping people along the journey and helping them to grow. And I personally don't believe that you can achieve that or should look to achieve that by waiting until things are sufficiently well capitalised that you can expect to you know, make a significant amount of margin on the, on the time that we spend with them. So the profile is very broad in the sense that I've got some amazing companies who I think are on the 21 to watch list as well, who literally I'm incorporating the company for them this week. It doesn't even really exist yet other than a, an idea and a, and a pitch deck right through to things that are raising some of the largest venture capital rounds that have ever been raised in, in the UK, which are definitely not public. So I wouldn't say there's a typical profile aside from the fact that from a, my personal practice, they're all venture-backed or or will be venture-backed businesses and they're on a fast growth trajectory and they're involved in some way in technology. I personally look at, look at businesses across a whole range of different sectors and technologies. I sort of, I don't like this phrase because it makes me sound non-expert, but I'm sector agnostic. So I look after everything from, you know, enterprise SaaS businesses through to life sciences, healthcare, AI. I don't know what is in between those things, but everything in between as well. So there's a, yeah, there's a real broad church of stuff. Sorry, I've just realised the first part of your question. I did the last bit and then didn't do the first bit. So I've, I've kind of alluded to a few things in a, in a fairly opaque manner. But one of my 
favourites, one of my sort of favourite companies, which I can talk about because it's in the public domain, is a, a Cambridge spin-out called Lark Optics. So I don't know if you know Lark, but the idea in, in my mind of being able to bring sort of virtual reality and particularly from a personal perspective, VR gaming without the inevitable sort of motion sickness is, to me, that's a game changer because the first time I ever became aware of the sort of then, back then, way back then, theoretical possibility of people wearing VR headsets for gaming and in everyday life, the first thing was always, yeah, but it's going to make you feel sick. And the couple of times I've played with it, that's absolutely been my experience, although it's not the case for everyone. So those guys seem to me to be on the cusp of unlocking like a, a real sort of massive shift in the way that we use what still feels like a slightly theoretical technology, notwithstanding the recent, you know, sort of Apple products coming out. So can't wait for them to come out of stealth mode. I know. Like, come on, let's go. I know. They're Trinity Bradfield Prize finalist. Obviously, I knew that. And that's definitely why I mentioned them. Jay. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm just teeing up the next question, Chris. So, yeah, you touched on there that you work with companies that all stages or you know pre-incorporation as well so that's a great segue to the next question which is you know when typically does your phone ring because i think we we had a brief chat before we started recording and i think you pointed out that maybe founders are either unsure what services a legal firm can provide to them there might be anxiety around the minute they pick the phone up the clock starts and they're going to start racking up a bill so Maybe a two-part question. When do they typically get in contact and, and, and when should they get in contact? Sure. Unlike Faye's previous question, I'll try and deal with those the right way around. So I remember to answer both elements. So <laughs> when does my phone normally ring? I would say the vast majority of new clients who come into me make contact with me for the first time when they're about to secure some financing. They've either signed a term sheet or they're about to sign a term sheet for their first round of funding. And someone somewhere in the market has suggested to them that amongst the, the pool of excellent lawyers that, that operate in this city and the region more generally, I'm one of the people they should have a chat with to see if there's you know the kind of right sort of chemistry and, and an opportunity there for us to work together. So that's, that's normal. I would say kind of 90% of the time, the first time the phone rings, or the email lands is, I was recommended to, to drop you a line. We're raising some money. We obviously need a lawyer to support us through that process. And that's a perfectly reasonable time to make that first contact. Mm. But my advice would always be to bring it forward a bit and do it earlier. And I think the, the kind of things that you alluded to as reasons why people might not do that, the one that I would add in a very self-deprecating manner is nobody wants to talk to a lawyer unless they really have to. But the, the reasons for not doing that are usually anxiety about cost. So let me make clear that this is not a Mishcon-specific comment. All of the lawyers who are active in the venture capital ecosystem supporting startups and who come recommended to, to a founder who might be listening to this or an entrepreneur will absolutely understand the thing that I was alluding to from my personal practice a moment ago, which is we absolutely cannot expect to start an invisible clock running the minute you pick up the phone and charge you some enormous amount of money because all lawyers are expensive. Let's be realistic about it. We, we like to think we're good value for money. You don't have to comment on that. But <laughs> but there is an often an element of sticker shock. So the right lawyers for a startup or someone else involved in the, in the venture ecosystem know and understand the financial dynamic and that for the advisors, it's usually a long-term play. We want to pass 
partner with you on a growth journey where being realistic, we expect that in the early stages, there won't be much margin involved in the work that we do. But as your business becomes de-risk, you raise larger rounds, you do bigger commercial partnerships. That's when both of us should expect that dynamic will slightly slightly change. Yeah. And and like I say, that's not a personal comment. There are a bunch of really great lawyers working at other firms who we really enjoy being sort of good friends with in this ecosystem who have exactly the same ethos. And the reason I dwell on that point is because the majority of people are moved to reluctantly call a lawyer when there is something going on, whether it's transactional, something that's going on, interrelationships between stakeholders and shareholders, that is either going to create value or is potentially going to erode stakeholder value. There's some there's something going on where you think, I either need to be protected here or I need to make sure I'm doing this right. And I hate to think that someone would be reluctant to ring me or anyone else because they were worried that the, there might be too great a cost to make sure that you've done something properly. And the right lawyers, ourselves and a bunch of others, will absolutely find a way to to navigate through that in a way that makes sense for you know, for these young businesses and for ourselves. So I I would love it if people would bring forward that initial contact. But, I think that's a really important... But I understand why they might not. I do yeah. get it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important message for founders to hear that are listening to this. It's also worth pointing out and, and also to recognise your colleague, Jeff Dragon, who's kindly giving up his time to uh, mentor on the Trinity Bradfield Prize. So, you know, very early stage ideas and early stage companies get access to someone like Jeff as part of that mentoring process. So I guess that's another advantage of going through either a competition or an accelerator. You you get those interactions. It's maybe less intimidating of trying to pick the phone up to a complete stranger yeah. you know you get that softer introduction yeah absolutely and from our perspective some of those mentoring relationships turn into client relationships and that's great but they don't have to and it's not the reason why we do it um and and why the lawyers in my team and equivalent teams at other firms in in cambridge they don't solely provide their time as a sort of crude business development activity it's about contributing to the ecosystem and, and being a positive participant in it so i'm glad to hear about jeff i mean i knew about jeff anyway but yeah if people can can make their way to those kind of mentoring arrangements and and build trust and confidence in someone who can also help them at an early stage then that can only be a positive thing so I think, again, both really good examples there about relationships. You know, pick the phone up, build those relationships and make... Do people still use phones? Yeah. Like send an email? No, no, no. We should use... Oh, sorry, Chris, just bear with me it's in a fine. minute. I'm just going to yell at James for a minute. We should use phones more often. It's a lot more effective than sending emails. We've all got too many emails. I know you're telling James off there, but let me violently agree with you. Yeah. I would say one of the things my poor team, if any of them are sort of foolish enough to listen to my monotone even further than they have to by listening to this podcast, they will be very familiar with my refrain of pick up the phone. Brilliant. When you have something complicated to explain to a client or, you know, something that's kind of nuanced or even just important, you get so much more out of it. And then from our perspective, the client has so much of a better experience. Absolutely. If instead of writing a two page long email, you just pick up the phone and talk it through. It's yeah, I'm a real fan of it, even though it feels like it's a dying art. Although I would say email is largely being replaced by WhatsApp now. Don't tell my compliance team, but 
it feels like feels like fifty percent of the instructions I get and advice I give are on WhatsApp, and I keep having to export WhatsApp chats into our document management system to keep a record of the advice I've given. Anyway, sorry, take you off on a tangent. No, 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 that's that's absolutely fine. I think we've almost finished, but one question I did want to ask was actually the M&A activity that you have gone through as an, as an organisation anyway. So for those that weren't familiar, the merger announcement was 2021 between Taylor Vinters to Mishkondorea. You've now had a full year under that banner. So what's it been like? Has anything changed? Does everyone know who you are? I think so. I hope so. If they don't, I'm hoping this will help. Right. Um, so it's it's been a great year, but a really strange year. I mean, let's be honest about it. And I, I have been when people have asked me generally, so I'm being consistent at least, squashing together two law firms, which by definition are stuffed full of highly opinionated people, is not particularly easy. The thing that we spent most time on, I think, in the pre-merger process was making sure that the organisations were kind of as culturally aligned as you can be. And that has hugely helped us through what at times has inevitably been a kind of challenging process from a literal operational perspective of kind of aligning systems and processes. And I I always joked that I would never leave Taylor Vinters because I didn't want to learn a new IT system. And then I've had one kind of forced upon me. But it's fine. And we're, we're very much out the other side of any of those kind of headaches, which at the moment that they were occurring felt really significant. And now, even now with just you know, in some cases, sort of eight, nine months removed from them, you start to think, well, actually, that was pretty trivial, but it just felt big at the time. The more important thing, though, is there's been a really positive change, which is that the thesis for the for the merger from a kind of Taylor Vinters perspective was that as our clients were growing and becoming more complex organisations with more nuanced and specialised needs from their lawyers, there were a bunch of things that they wanted our help with and they had you know, they had and have a really deep relationship with us as a group of individuals and the Taylor Vinters brand looking after them and their legal needs. But there were things they were asking of us that as a effectively a relatively small boutique firm, we just couldn't realistically do. And the great thing about the merger, the thesis for it on our side and the, the really positive change that we've experienced as a result of it is that we now have an incredibly deep bench of real, real specialists in some fairly nuanced areas of legal practice, but things that our clients need, you know, and as we saw ourselves wanting to continue to work with our clients as they grew and make sure that we were the right firm for them as they went from being a startup to a scale up to a, you know, sort of fully fledged organisation and ultimately to whatever their exit ambitions might be, whether that's M&A, listing, etc., We wanted to make sure that they never needed to look outside of our business to get the support they needed. And in many cases, they didn't want to go outside of our organisation. They wanted the way that the TV lawyers worked with them and the relationships that they had with us to guide them through these new challenges that they were having to address as they as they grew. And we can now do that because we've got this, you know, sort of much larger firm around us with a whole bunch of of other areas of expertise and specialism. But at its core for the types of clients that I've spent my career looking after, it's also the case that nothing has changed. We're the same same team, same leadership. You can query whether or not that's a good idea, given that it's me. But, you know, the, the kind of commercial model is the same. The strategy is exactly the same. So for the bits that were working beautifully, nothing has changed. But for the bits where we saw 
commercial opportunity and to an extent commercial challenge through clients wanting to do things with us that we couldn't do. We've largely solved for that problem now. So yeah, it's been hugely positive. Not always easy, but really positive. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thanks so much, Chris, for taking the time to come on. We know you're a very busy person. Uh, It's been really insightful. It's been great. And thank you for only mentioning the Super Bowl once. I managed to not cry through the interview, which is a positive thing. (laughs) James will give you a call and carry on the discussion. Do you know what phone is? As long as it's a call, not an email. Ironically, having worked in telecoms for 20 years, I don't read anyone. (laughs) Maybe that's why I got out. (laughs) Great. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Good to see you both. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. Cambridge United Foundation is the charitable arm of Cambridge United Football Club. We utilise the power of sport to improve people's lives in our community. We run a range of sessions working with different groups from older adults to school children and for anyone who might not have equal access to sport and activity. To find out more about what we do, visit cufcfoundation.com.